Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, I'm Sunil Rao. I'm an interventional cardiologist and professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center, and I'm chief of cardiology at the Durham VA Health System. For this episode, we're going to be talking about the approach to the in-hospital management of the patient with acute coronary syndrome. So over the next 10 minutes or so, I'd like to talk to you about the strategies for triaging, the initial in-hospital antiplatelet therapy, antithrombin therapy, and then early invasive management of the patient with acute coronary syndrome. So when a patient presents to the emergency department with suspected ACS, or acute coronary syndrome, the first decision point is to really determine whether they have non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome or ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Let's talk about each of these categories. So for non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome versus STEMI, the decision point is really based on what the presenting EKG shows. So as their name suggests, patients with non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome do not have ST segment elevation on their EKG. The EKG can be normal or they can have ST segment depression. On the other hand, patients with ST segment elevation will have evidence of what's called myocardial injury, which is elevation of the ST segment in two or more contiguous leads. The reason that this distinction is important is that the diagnosis of one or the other will determine the initial priorities and management of that patient. So for ST segment elevation myocardial infarction that shows an injury current on the EKG, remember that the leads in which that ST elevation is present allows one to localize the presence of the coronary artery occlusion. ST segment depression is not localizing, and that's an important thing to remember. So for patients with STEMI who have ST segment elevation, the priority really is to open the occluded coronary artery and reestablish blood flow to the injured myocardium. And that can be done either with systemic thrombolytic therapy, which is not used very often in this country anymore. More commonly, patients are taken to the cardiac catheterization laboratory where that coronary artery is mechanically opened and a stent is placed. That's called primary PCI, and ideally it should be done within 90 minutes of presentation. I'm really not going to talk about STEMI much more. We're going to focus the rest of this really on non-ST segment elevation acute coronary syndrome. So for the patient who does not have ST segment elevation, who falls into the category of non-ST elevation ACS, there are two potential diagnoses. The first is unstable angina, And that's really defined by a patient who has new onset or accelerating chest pain who presents to the emergency department and does not have evidence of myocardial damage. And that evidence of myocardial damage is really from laboratory testing of CKMB, and nowadays it's really about high-sensitivity troponin. For a patient who presents to the emergency department with chest pain, no ST segment elevation, who has an elevated troponin, that patient has a non-ST elevation myocardial infarction or non-STEMI. And that myocardial infarction is manifest through this elevated troponin value that indicates that there actually has been myocardial damage. As we start thinking about the treatment of these patients, it's important to keep in mind what the pathophysiology is. Non-ST segment elevation, acute coronary syndrome, and STEMI are both caused by plaque rupture or plaque erosion. There's something going on inside the coronary artery where there's cholesterol plaque that causes it to have its inside contents exposed to the passing blood flow that then will lead to thrombus formation in that coronary artery. When the thrombus formation is completely occlusive, that patient has STEMI. And again, we're not going to talk about that particular patient population. 
When the thrombus formation is subocclusive or it becomes occlusive and then the body lyses it, that patient will not have ST segment elevation on the EKG and they will have non-ST elevation ACS. And that thrombus formation is caused by platelet activation and aggregation and thrombin generation. What's important to remember is that there's a continuous feedback loop between thrombin generation and platelet activation such that thrombin generation, we say, begets thrombin generation, which then begets platelet activation and aggregation. So our targets for therapy become obvious. It's really about antiplatelet therapy and antithrombin therapy. That's the initial medical management of a non-ST segment elevation ACS. Our goal is to reduce the amount of myocardium that's being damaged and is at risk. Ultimately, these patients will require a trip to the cath lab to define their coronary anatomy and see how many blockages they have, and we'll talk about that in just a second. When the patient presents to the emergency department, there are some initial therapeutic measures that need to be taken, the first of which is the administration of oxygen and treatment of the chest pain. Now, let's talk about oxygen for a second because it was long thought that the administration of oxygen is such a low-risk intervention that every patient should get oxygen therapy. There has been a large randomized trial conducted in Sweden that shows that that randomized patients to oxygen versus no oxygen, showing that routine administration of oxygen actually is not helpful. So now we limit the administration of oxygen to only those patients who have evidence of hypoxemia. Treatment of of pain can be uh, done with either intravenous or sublingual nitroglycerin or opiates uh, in certain cases where nitroglycerin is not being effective. Now, let's get down to the business of antiplatelet therapy. Aspirin is the fundamental treatment that we use. It's been studied in large randomized trials. It does reduce infarct size and in some populations may reduce mortality. The dose of of aspirin is generally recommended by the guidelines to be 325 milligrams for an initial dose, followed by no greater than 162 milligrams. We don't really know what the ideal dose of aspirin really is, but we do know that higher doses seem to be associated with an increased risk of bleeding, GI bleeding, with no additional benefit. There's a large randomized trial going on right now called Adaptable that will hopefully give us what the evidence is for a certain aspirin dose in secondary prevention. What we know about aspirin alone is that while it reduces the risk of recurrent death and myocardial infarction, it is simply not enough. So newer antiplatelet therapies have been developed, and the majority of those are directed at the P2Y12 receptor on the platelet, so-called P2Y12 receptor antagonists. The first of these that were studied in acute coronary syndrome is clopidogrel. And the large CURE trial that randomized 12,000 patients with non-ST segment elevation ACS randomized patients to either aspirin plus clopidogrel or aspirin alone. And up to 12 months of therapy with dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel reduced the risk of death, MI, or stroke by 20% compared with aspirin alone. There was an increased risk of bleeding, however, and there was about a 1% absolute increase in major bleeding, but no increase in fatal bleeding. That led to the paradigm that more intense platelet inhibition may actually reduce ischemic events even further. So two additional agents have been developed. Uh, One is called Prasagrel, which, like clopidogrel, is an irreversible inhibitor of platelet function. And the other is Ticagrelor, which is a reversible agent. And what I mean by reversible is that not that it has an antidote, but it will come off of the receptor over time, whereas Prasagrel binds irreversibly to that P2Y12 receptor. Let's talk about Ticagrelor first because it was studied in a large trial very similar to the CURE trial where they were all comers with uh, patients who had acute coronary syndrome. So these were patients who uh, presented to the emergency department with chest pain, were diagnosed with both ST elevation or non-ST elevation ACS, and uh, they were taken to the cath lab. Some of these patients underwent coronary stenting. Others got bypass surgery, and others were treated medically. 
The PLATO trial randomized 18,000 patients with acute coronary syndrome to get aspirin plus clopidogrel versus aspirin plus ticagrelor. And in that study, over long-term follow-up, the addition of ticagrelor to aspirin reduced cardiovascular death, MI, or stroke by an additional 20% over the combination of aspirin plus clopidogrel. Now, interestingly, in this particular trial, there was no increase in uh, bleeding as it was defined in the trial. However, when other definitions of bleeding were applied, there was an increase in bleeding with ticagrelor added to aspirin compared with clopidogrel, which makes sense. It's a more potent antiplatelet agent. The other important thing about the ticagrelor strategy was that it actually reduced mortality as well. Now, let's talk about prasigrel, which is studied in a little bit of a different population. Prasigrel, as I mentioned, is an irreversible inhibitor of platelets, just like clopidogrel, but it's much more predictable and much more potent. It was studied only in acute coronary syndrome patients who were undergoing PCI. So that's about a subset of patients with acute coronary syndrome because not all patients with ACS will get PCI. In that population, again, the addition of a more potent agent like prasigrel reduced the risk of death on Myers stroke over clopidogrel by another 20%. Now, keep in mind the caveats here. It's not applicable to patients who are getting medical therapy. It is only applicable to those patients who are undergoing PCI, and that strategy was implemented in the cath lab, not in the emergency department. One important note about Prasigrel, it does increase the risk of bleeding, and in specific populations, it increased the risk of fatal bleeding. And those populations were patients over the age of 75, patients who had a body weight less than 60 kilograms, or patients who had a history of stroke or TIA. In patients who had a history of stroke or TIA, Prasigrel is not recommended. For the other two groups, you can use a lower dose of Prasigrel. So that's antiplatelet therapy. What about antithrombin therapy? Well, the available agents that are recommended by the guidelines, there are four of them. Unfractionated heparin, which is the most commonly used. Bivalorudin, which is a direct thrombin inhibitor, which is not used very often. It's a very expensive agent and generally used just in the cath lab. Fondaparinux, which is a subcutaneous uh, indirect 10A inhibitor. Uh, that agent is not used very often in the United States. It is not recommended for use in the cath lab. And then there's anoxaparin, which is a low molecular weight heparin, which is subcutaneous, uh, given at a dose of one milligram per kilogram twice a day. Several large randomized trials have compared these uh, agents in various combinations, uh, and it shows that, by and large, they're all pretty equivalent. I think most hospitals will use either subcutaneous anoxaparin because it's easy to give, or they'll use IV unfractionated heparin. The other important aspect of acute coronary syndrome management is deciding who should go to the cath lab to have their coronary anatomy defined and when that should occur. What's important and what the guidelines recommend is the use of available risk scores. There are several risk scores that are available, the GRACE risk score, the PURSUIT risk score. GRACE is probably the one that's used most, most often, or the TIMI risk score. And it's pretty clear that patients who are at high risk, and what we mean by high risk is at high risk for recurrent ischemic events, death or MI, should go to the cath lab relatively early, and that's within 24 to 48 hours, to have their coronary anatomy defined. And the importance of that is that patients who have a disease in several coronary vessels may require bypass surgery, whereas others who have uh, less significant disease or less complex disease may be candidates for PCI and coronary stenting. I'm not going to talk about the trials that compare PCI versus bypass surgery. That's a topic for another uh, episode. But what I will say is that overall, it's important that patients who have high-risk features, and I think the practical issue here is patients who have an elevated troponin really should go to the cath lab within 24 hours to have their coronary anatomy defined. The overall landscape of acute coronary syndrome management in the United States shows that somewhere between 55 and 65% of patients will get PCI, about 12% will get bypass surgery, and the balance will get medical therapy. 
On a final note, I do want to underscore that all of these patients with STEMI or non-ST elevation ACS or unstable angina should get uh, appropriate secondary prevention measures before they get discharged from the hospital. That means good control of their high blood pressure, good control of their diabetes, smoking cessation counseling and help with smoking cessation, uh, appropriate lipid management, and referral to cardiac rehabilitation. We know that based on the the evidence that's available and the guideline recommendations, those strategies are probably more important in reducing the long-term risk of cardiovascular death or MI than anything that we can do in the cath lab. Um, As a reminder, the views and opinions stated during this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or the Durham VA Hospital.